Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to part two of A Penny for Your Thoughts, where we are going to discuss the diaporthy complex with Dr. Fabina Matthew. Thank you for being here. Um, we're going to discuss the management of this disease. Uh, so uh, two weeks ago on our podcast, we talked about the science. Um, we're going to dive into management of stem canker. Uh, we have some growers planting soybeans earlier and earlier. Uh, we've, uh, we were just talking right before we started this recording about a couple of the podcasts we've done with some, some soybean experts. That's been a recommendation by a lot of them. Um, does that trend, uh, Dr. Fabina, does that trend, um, increase our risk of stem canker? Yes, I would want to say dependent on the maturity group. So that's what our studies are showing. It's quite possible that the late season maturity varieties may be more susceptible to the uh, to these diaporty species as compared to early season, early maturity uh, maturing varieties. We don't have a solid reason as to why that might be happening, but I I want to strongly believe that has a lot to do with the planting time and harvest time, and also the you know because we can discount out everything else. So, the fact that the fungus is present all over the place, the varieties are susceptible, and the fungicides may may not be working at that given time and space. So, yeah. uh, so planting time might have an effect. But the longer, but the key part is, the longer the soybean tends to stay in the ground, that maybe has a little more impact than the actual planting date. Okay, but that's just my theory. So, so the longer the soybean stays in the ground, meaning like uh, it, it just sits there and doesn't do anything because of environmental conditions. You know, the the seed just sits there. In, in, so, in, no, so, so the longer the soybean sits in the plant, the pathogen okay. has the opportunity to infect the soybean okay. plant. Yeah, good, and, good to know. And and, yeah. and so you know this this question, you know, when, when we're talking about stem canker specifically, you know, I, I'm glad you clarified in the science portion. You know, maybe we we should stop using the the northern and southern distinguish. You know, distinguishing yeah. stem canker. It's it's you know we we've identified the species associated with with stem canker. Um, so. You know, with with that, and thinking about since we're in the management portion, um, do, does rotation or tillage have have any impact on this disease? So, um, typically, soybean rotation is with corn, and studies have shown that corn could be a symptomless host of diaporthy, meaning it can live as an endophyte was possibly as an epiphyte. But we don't know so much about it on corn, except that. There could be sister species of diaporthy belonging to the same order that can infect corn, and I've seen some studies on that, but we don't know if diaporthy can truly infect corn. So that's the, a common rotation. And the other thing um, that we commonly see here in the Dakotas is the uh, planting of crops that might be susceptible to several pathogens at the same time. So like, for instance, soybean and sunflowers are grown in close proximity. And both are susceptible to some uh, sclerotinia. They could be susceptible to diaporte. And there are several of these species that can go from one crop to the other. Um, and weeds are a major issue this year in particular, um, you know, with the dry conditions. Weeds are also potential hosts 
So um, if rotation is going to really help out, uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, rotation with wheat is definitely helpful because we don't have any reports where we have isolated diaporty from the wheat. But corn, there has been studies showing, but we don't know um, how bad it's going to be or how much disease are we going to observe the, the year after uh, the, when, after the soybeans is planted to corn. There are no, those kind of studies are kind of missing. Um, with tillage, we do tell, you know, farmers to disk it to apply or to follow more of a minimum till, reduced till, so that they can bury the residues or break the residues down so that diaporty don't become a problem, just like you have in other diseases. Yeah. Um, That's always a tricky one nowadays, too, because we have have so much promotion of of reduced tillage, strip till, all all the stuff, you know, soil conservation to soil health promotion, right? Uh, It's always tricky because I feel like a lot of these diseases, right? We we know that if you bury the residue, you can, you can benefit that the the following year, but what, at at what cost, right? Yeah, we had, we have, we always have these little nuggets that we pull out of our podcast and one of them, and I, I, maybe you'll remember who, but somebody used the term, uh, don't do recreational tillage and it, uh, that one, (laughs) that one's always, uh, always stuck with me but um so thinking about um thinking about tillage uh thinking about our rotation practices what about uh soybean seed treatment um obviously the you know the the market has a million different products and different recipes and um generics and blends and all that kind of thing does do those have an impact so we currently do not have efficacy data for these uh, how these seed treatments perform against diaporty, and that's in our list of things to do. Um, and so we, few of us, have talked about it. Of course, Dr. Noidal has uh, <laughs> decided that yeah, we were going to look into it, uh, uh, maybe in the years to come. I don't know, but I would think that Simpinco CC treatment products are, you know, they have broad spectrum. They're technically supposed to control more than you know, one fungus, so diaporty may be included. Uh, but if we are looking for specific data like we would have for Physiarium verbiliforme, then we don't have anything that's suggesting those products are going to work against diaporty. In case anyone's tuning in and missed the science portion of our uh, <laughs> of our episode with, with uh, Dr. Fabina, Mr. Know-it-all, Dr. Know-it-all <laughs> is our uh, good friend at Iowa State University, Darren Mueller. So uh, we'll have to have to chime in to, uh, to him. Um, we have used, uh, fungicide gets used often as a, as a soybean uh, treatment in season fungicide. Um, is, is there, uh, can fungicide have efficacy against stem canker? And if so, um, is it, symptomology or infection and is there a specific timing that that could have an impact right so fungicides um, are typically recommended at r3 growth stage you know the pod development stage for most diseases which also includes diaporty associated diseases is what i call it yep. um, i have seen very few fungicides where they have they specifically have said pod and stem blight on their label my thinking is that it should work, but again, we do not have efficacy data suggesting that they are specific against these type or these species. Yeah, I, I bet um, that's really hard too. You know, thinking about some of the previous conversation in the science portion, if if we have yeah. this endophytic organism living in, or uh, you know, just just in the plant potentially, or or is it spores that are landing on the plant? Right, it's probably all about the timing of that fungicide application, mm-hmm. even if it is efficacious on on that pathogen you got to time it with the conditions right it, it, it would be really hard to 
go out there and determine, hey, this is the the conditions are conducive. This is when we know stem canker is going to infect. That would be really hard, I would bet. Right. But there are, um, you know, we are pushing the studies through and there are some studies coming out of Brazil that is suggesting application of fungicides um, 30 days after the soybeans have, have emerged. Oh, so I'm okay. talking about mid to late vegetative growth stage. And I believe there are, there are a few products coming out. I don't know if it's been labeled in the U.S., but uh, it seems like there will be products soon out in the market that hmm. will be uh, specific against these type or these species. It's good but, to know. Um, like you mentioned, timing is the key. So I I don't know if one application is going to work. It might be multiple applications. Yeah. Because at this time, the, most of the commercial varieties that we have in the market may not have persistence to these diaporty species. Yeah. Well, that, that's perfect timing. Uh, I mean, my next question was going to be about genetic resistance. And, and I know... You know, initially, I know that I've seen um, some catalogs describe northern versus southern stem canker resistance. And again, maybe we should potentially move away and just focus on the species and and, and maybe not even the species, just, just stem canker in general, right? Mm-hmm. If we know it's these two species causing this this disease. Um, what, what do we know about genetic resistance? Have we identified um, any alleles or, or QTLs uh, associated with genetic resistance to this? So we have a recent publication from my lab. Um, it came out this summer, um, and it's a collaborative project with 17 other researchers, so across different U.S. states. Um, one of the issues with the as to why, you know, of course, this disease was really not a priority for any of the breeding programs. It was reported in 1920 for pollen stem blight, 1940 for stem canker, and then CDK in 1970. The disease was there, but nobody cared because several other diseases gained priority, and then, then the breeding uh, goals and vision was meant for other diseases like white mold, and nobody cared much for diaporty. So as a result, what happened was there were no parental materials that were screened, which the breeding uh, programs could use for developing resistant varieties. And another confusion is the names of these organisms. They are different, what we know some 80 years ago versus what we know today. Yeah. So what my program did through the recent publication was to revisit some of the parental materials that uh, people have published in the past and check to see if they're going to hold up against multiple isolates of like, we we focused on Colivora, Aspilati, and Longicola. Yeah, basically the yeah. new newly identified, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, many names. And so we do have parental materials that could work if the breeding programs want to use them. So we've got three on Aspilari, um, two on, for Colivora, and then there's one for Longicola. Okay. So, so those have been confirmed in the greenhouse. We didn't do any field trials, but my understanding is because they have been challenged with isolates from different regions, they should be stable. However, genotypic uh, data is really pending, and that's something my program will look into uh, for future. Um, but one of the things that I want to say is that, at least based off our studies in sunflower, genes having resistance to one fungus may not have, it may not be the same genes that will confer resistance to the other. So at the end of the day, as we are identifying these genes, markers, QTLs, they are going to be different for these species. And then we are looking at gene stacking to give a complete package against these type of these species. Okay. okay. So... Um, so that's that's something that we've seen it in sunflower, and my guess is that's going to translate to soybeans as well. As we think about um, management and kind of the the goal of our 
our show is really to talk about high yield management and thinking well about our acres. Do you see differences in incidence or severity um, based on fertility levels, um, either high yield or more stress-induced environments? So uh, you may have to rephrase the question. Is it the relation between fertility issues and diaporty or? Yeah, yeah. Is there, do you see a difference in disease severity based on fertility levels in fields? Yeah. Okay. Or, or, or even like stress, is it like a high yield disease like SDS or is it more of a stress induced disease? Sure. You know, like, like a crown rot maybe. Right. So for, uh, on soybeans, I have usually seen environmental stress and aging stresses. Those are the two stress factors that I would see would have led to diaporte. However, again, uh, given on you know my experience on sunflowers, there has been studies suggesting an increased level of nitrogen can increase the severity of these disease in sunflowers. Hmm. And you know, keep in mind that sunflowers they are not nitrogen fixers. We are putting down chemical fertilizers to uh, cultivate the crops. So. Uh, there, there has to be an optimum level of nitrogen that needs to go. In other words, it's going to aggravate uh, stem canker and sunflower. Now, I don't know if anyone has looked at it in soybeans. Yeah. Um, soybean is a natural nitrogen fixer, so you know we do have optimum levels available for night for soybean cultivation, especially at the early in the season. Um, but my experience tells me that it's usually the environmental stress or the stress associated with soybean as it's getting ready for harvest is when you get to see the disease. On it. Yeah. it is interesting because it has been, I, I don't know that we have an official stance on it, but it certainly has been talked about that maybe some in-season nitrogen, especially during um, pod fill could potentially contribute to some yield. And so it would be, it would be interesting to see if there's a correlation there. If people are, you know, getting do, more, you know, seeing more stem canker. Yeah. Doing some small, some small nitrogen applications during the reproductive phases. It'd be an interesting, uh, interesting to see those observations. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and another stress I want to add are the weeds. Many of them are glyphosate resistant and the presence of weeds can really stress out the soybean plants and, uh, stem cane could, could be a potential problem. And I've seen that in my trials. Huh. That's good to know. Well, it's not like we have a problem uh, managing weeds anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Story of the last three years. So, uh, for, uh, Fabina, um, I, I think the final question for the management portion of stem canker, um, it, it, you know, if, if we were to find stem canker in, the, in, in a field, is, is it too late to do anything? Or, or is there something a, a grower could do to potentially reduce the impact or manage that? I would think it's too late to do anything um, because many, I mean, when I moved to North Dakota last year, I had farmers, I had crop consultants call me telling me that they're seeing these crop circles in the field and then they're potentially getting like 20 bushels out of, out of that crop circle where everywhere else it's at least a 60 to 70. And, you know, and I'm like, we can't do anything about the crop circles. It's just, yeah. that's... Did you say you have thing. a UFO problem? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, maybe we can get the drones on and get some pictures, but we really have a problem because the fungicides are not going to work. <laughs> and, you know, uh, there has been studies shown it may not even be profitable if one were to spray it after R5 growth stage, right? After the seeds have already developed, it's no point yeah. spraying besides. So maybe it is time for the companies to step up you know, the resistance or developing resistant varieties that has the complete package for diapology species. Yeah. I am currently working with breeding programs, uh, especially universities, as well as the USDA. We're doing a lot of screenings in my lab 
for resistance. So we're looking at parental materials and so on. Yeah, that's awesome. As we wrap up the management portion of STEM canker, is there anything that we haven't covered or that you think our growers should know about managing this disease? So a couple of things, um, you know, that I tell farmers, you know, fungicides may not be our best option today, but it might be in future. Genetics may not be the strongest. Uh, weed management is very critical uh, just because weeds are great sources of these uh, diaporte. Uh, they're excellent hosts. Um, and another one that I haven't personally researched into, but I have been reading about it is uh, the timing as to when to harvest soybeans. So usually when I'm out there with my combine harvesting my trial, you know, we wait for the moisture level to go down to at least 10%. But somewhere I have read that for di to, just to prevent the diaporte infection, perhaps about a 15% is what we want to wait for and then harvest out the soybeans. So if you're going maybe anyway in that range, I, I, I believe then we can protect the seeds from further infection and so on. Yeah. So the timing of harvest is very critical. That yeah. is in terms of the moisture level. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, good advice moving forward, you know, as we continue to think about uh, this this disease. Um, as we transition to pot and stem blight management, um, let, let's begin, the, you know, the discussion um, d does, and I think you kind of touched on this, but I, I think it's good to clarify you know, even for my sake, you know, d does pot and stem blight cause yield loss or is it more of just a, a visual, uh, you know, disease that, that we get in soybean fields? So I have often debated or dismissed it off like saying it's some cosmetic issues on soybeans. It just yeah. decided pretty and then it just showed up. Um, but then the reality is I, you know, when I saw my trial affected by pot and stem blight, where the expected yield was about 60 to 70 bushels per acre, but I'm getting like hardly 20 because of a disease that showed up at maturity, I want to believe that there is potential for the fungi to cause disease. But again, the timing is very critical. Um, yield losses between 10, 10 to 20 has been reported. Um, and a lot of it, uh, the way I see it, or the way I saw it when it happened in my farm was really when the fungus infected the pots, and then we started seeing discoloration of the seeds. I think that's the part that uh, that pot and stem blight has the most effect on. The stem, it doesn't matter because at that time, you know, soybeans is getting ready for harvest and we don't necessarily worry too much about the stem, but we need to get the pods out in a timely way. Yeah. Do you think the earlier planting concept uh, that we've come back to several times uh, impacts the risk of getting pot and stem blight? It, it can just because it probably is going to give opportunities for some of these species to cause the disease. One of the information that, you know, is probably missing is although these, it's a diaporty complex, meaning several fungi are involved, we don't necessarily know the optimum conditions of, for each of these species to cause disease. Uh, we've, we have been massively playing with three in my program. So Colivora and Aspilati, they like temperatures between 25 to 30. Longicola is pretty much in that 20 to 25 range. So pot and stem blight, if it's infected by Longicola, we're going to see it to be active in that temperature and then it can just compromise the yield, depending again if moisture is available. Yeah. Uh, so that's what is dictating as to how bad is my field going to be because I have diaporty problem in the field. Yeah. Um, you've kind of touched on this too. Um, is this similar, is pond stem blight similar where, where we think the, the later maturity soybean varieties have, have more of a risk to getting this, this disease? 
So for pond stem blight, I um, I have seen it maybe on both the early maturing and late maturing varieties. Um, I, I don't know if there is a preference for one over the other. Okay. Um, but when it comes to CTK is when I've seen the later maturing varieties to be a little more susceptible than what we would see at early maturity. And I believe that has a lot to do with because we tend to harvest out the early maturity much earlier than, you know, late yeah. maturity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, do you believe that rotation or tillage practice has an impact on the management of this disease? We talked a little bit about corn potentially as a host, but... Um, Right. So, yeah, it's it's going to be the same answer. A lot of it has to do with, you know, reduced till, minimum till for tillage practices. I haven't quite paid uh, a lot of, uh, played a little bit strip tillage, although I, I do know that it is getting very popular. Uh, one of the studies that we will be looking into next year would be looking at the effect of tillage and residue management. So, you know, like um, corn store, for instance, you have 0%, 50%, 90%. Is that a preference as to which of these might you know, suppress or promote the disease. There's a lot of information that's really missing from those agronomy aspects. Mm-hmm. But in general, just like any other disease, yes, tillage practices can help. SED management can help. Crop rotation uh, with non-hosts is what I would say would help. Yeah. We talked earlier about the timing of fungicide applications and soybean being really ideal around that R3 timeframe um, with a specific complex aimed at uh, a specific disease aimed at pod and stem would a foliar fungicide have an impact on that and maybe even pushing that pushing that uh application back a little bit or do you think there's an opportunity there so i would think there's potential because uh, our studies are showing there are qis and sdhis that uh, may be effective against the diaporthy diseases. And these are based off my communication with researchers out of Brazil. Um, so I would want to, and, and also in sunflowers, we were able to show that these two uh, FAC groups, that is QI's FAC11 and STHI FAC7, they seem to be effective against pomopsis. Our issue with soybean really is the timing. Uh-huh. Um, we don't have a good handle of when exactly the diaporthy can infest soybean, and we feel like by the time we spray, the diaporthy is already in the plant. So, um, you know, by combining resistance varieties, my, my hope is that it's going to be available in the near future. With the fungicide application, maybe those, when you combine the techniques, that might give us a better control of these diseases rather than using the practice by itself. Yeah. So we're looking at IPM. Uh, do, do we do we have any genetic resistance? You know, uh, when I'm thinking diaporthy complex and, and genetic resistance, I'm I'm thinking stem canker. Do do we have any genetic resistance even identified or know anything about that for pod and stem blight? So for pod and stem blight, there are a few that's coming through the public breeding programs like uh, universities and USDARs. I don't know if they're commercially available, but there has been varieties that is uh, that has been that I've seen in at least in papers where they have released with the uh, resistance to diaporthy longicola. Okay. Um, yeah. So those I'm guessing those are for intended for public use. Yeah. If a grower is finding potter stem blight showing up in their field. Is there anything they can do at that time to manage or reduce the impact? No, there is a, really there is nothing that they can do uh, just because pollen stem blight really shows up close enough to maturity. So my best 
advice then to the farmer would be to play it by ear with the moisture levels. I mean, if it is ready to go, you may not have to wait to 10% to harvest. If you can just harvest it at 15%, that might yeah. be your time to do so, it. So maybe harvest a little bit wetter moisture just to reduce the impact yes. potentially, yeah. but there's nothing you can do to solve it. But yeah, maybe harvest a little bit wetter, right? Yes. Most yes. growers shoot for that 13% around here, right, to take to the elevator. So, I mean, if you, if you think you have it, maybe harvest at 14 That'll re reduce the impact of the potential loss. You know, and that's that's really good advice because I think about this year, especially in corn, you know, we we started to see stock quality issues in corn and started to make recommendations to prioritize based off those observations. I don't know if we we necessarily put that same uh, set of lenses on. So yeah. that's, that's really good advice. We probably do because how many soybean fields did we harvest at 9% this year? Well, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean a, a ton of them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, um, I, I guess I'm asking this one too, thinking about as we talk to management of diaporthy seed decay, if, if you find pot or stem blight later in the growing season, you know, once that starts showing up, should a, should a grower be looking for diaporthy seed decay? Is that something they should be cr thinking about and, and cracking pods and potentially looking for that? Um, I, I would recommend that the farmer do so. Um, I believe I got calls from Iowa this year and they were wondering about it. Like if I have pot and stem blight, can I expect to see some level of seed infection in my seeds? And I tell them, again, it depends it's uh, It depends on if the conditions are favorable because I'm going to assume that the variety that they have planted is susceptible. So if they think the plants are going to be in the field for a longer time, it will be better to do that monetary check to see if there is something white showing up on the seeds. Yeah. Uh, We're kind of going to put this one to bed the same way we did the last one. So thinking about pot and stem blight, any other things you want our listeners to know or management recommendations? So again, weeds are a critical pro, you know, issue. Um, weed, weed management is very important because weeds are a problem in a soybean field. This year, it was pretty dry. There were weeds all over the place. Um, and these weeds are great hosts of diaporthy and longicola. Um, and so weed management is equally important, I want to say. It seems like when we talk about weed management, we think a lot about... Um you know, nutrients and water and, and sunlight capture. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about it as a, as a disease host and especially yeah. in that proximity and especially some of the vigor of some of our weeds later in the season. So you think about the weeds that certainly aren't, um, naturally senescing the way that the soybean yeah. plant is. And Still so you've nice got this vibrant host, uh, <laughs> sitting there potentially as a, as a, as a host plant. That's, that's very good advice. Yeah, well, uh, let's wrap the management portion up by talking uh, about diaporthy seed decay. And, yep. and obviously, you know, th this might be a bigger issue for seed production acres, right? If, if you're if you're one of those growers that produces seed for seed companies and, and then that seed gets used to plant next year. But still, yeah. I'd, I'd be curious, um, you know, think, thinking about this, and, and maybe I'll go off script here. Um, you know, we, we've kind of been discussing yield um, and, and potential yield impacts. Do, do we know? Say, say you're just a commercial farmer, and, and you're going to take that seed to a to a, a grain bin and sell it. Does, does diaporthy seed decay? Will, will that impact a, a grower's yield? 
Yes, it would. Um, I have seen uh, studies suggesting losses can go up to 100%, depending on how severe it is. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so not, not just 10%, yeah. up to 100%. Up to 100%, <laughs> yeah. 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 So with CTA, the impact is even greater because uh, it it could be that your whole field is kind of down. But also think about the situation where we're talking about seed quality issues here. So the processors or the grain bin may not even accept the seeds because it's not healthy. Right. Yeah. You have a seed that's half the size. Uh, it really cannot be used for processing, whether it is oil or if it's for <coughs> you know, food or any other purposes that soybean could be used for. And so um, even if the farmer is able to kind of, you know, get his crop harvested, let's say it's a loss might be about a 20, 30%, that cosmetic damage on the seed is really going to cost him dollars. I mean, he's yeah. going to lose. Because nobody's going to take those. I think we talked, Maybe talked about this in the science, but talk a little bit about um, seed decay in longer maturity uh, soybeans. So uh, the seed um, decay in later maturity, the way I understand is later maturity varieties tend to be more susceptible to diaporthy longicola. Now, seed decay... As much as I'm talking about Diaporthia longicola, because that's the only fungus that people have researched a lot on as a CTK pathogen, but we do know there are nine other species that can cause uh, CTK in the United States. Uh, and my lab uh, identified three novel ones, and we didn't name and give any of our names to that. We just gave the name of schools <laughs> and came up with some creative names that <laughs> has never been previously reported. Um, so again, there's a lot of questions on these species composition on the seed. Um, how do we decide one is more abundant than the other? Um, what we have seen from our experience, especially when we get seeds from seed lots or from farmer fields, they are all complex. It's about three or four different diaporthy species coming out at the same time. Hmm. Um, and by so it's more at common the, to find three or four species on seed than, yeah. than just one or two common ones. Right. It's it's just a complex that comes out. Um, it, it appears white. And yes, it's white. We would think it's laundry color, but it's always a mix of those coming out. Um, is there anything that we can do with the late maturing varieties? Well, we can't play much with the harvest time or planting time. Um, you know, all that we can do really is to look for resistant lines. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We are, we are breeding. We are basically screening lines for uh, the breeding programs from the south to see if there's any parental materials or something that they could use for uh, as for for breeding purposes. Yeah. So so is is diaporthy seed decay? You know, if a, if a grower is thinking about management or has maybe had a, a stem canker or a, a, a pod and stem blight with with the, the species associated with diaporthy seed decay, it, d does rotation ha have any impact on that? So since it's the same species, you know, um, and most uh, rotation practices are with corn and corn being you now a symptomless host of diaporthy, I don't know how much that rotation is really going to help. Now, in okay. our area, soybean is also rotated with wheat and barley that are non-hosts of uh, diaporthy. Um, and so... Uh, so so we, we talked about rotational crops, but there's also crops that are grown in close proximity to soybean that can also be susceptible to these diaporthy species. And the sunflower is a great example. In our area, dryable beans is another example. Um, and so crops that are in proximity or rotation, they can have an impact, but how much it is really reducing the inaculum that needs further studies. Gotcha. Uh, back to our favorite fungicide question. Uh, fungicide, does it have an impact? 
So we, uh, so, uh, so it's, so I had, I had the seedling diseases group through the United Soybean Board. So I mm-hmm. do have a few researchers. So he's, it's uh, Dr. Rojas, Alejandro Rojas is now at Michigan State University. And uh, his studies have indicated that uh, the QI fungicides, they can control Phomopsis seed infection better than the other chemistries like the DMIs and SDHI. Mm. However, um, these need to be tested again in the field to see if that's the case. Um, you know, ideally, if we were to spray fungicides, we're still looking between that R3 to R5 thing because anything above R5 may not fetch us the economic um, advantage that we look for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's where we are at. Uh, my lab's also doing, uh, we're screening isolates for resistance uh, to these fungicides, and we have not identified anything. Uh, we haven't identified a fungicide resistance strain in the diapoidy population for soybean. So that's good news, which kind of yeah, says absolutely. that yeah, these chemistries could be helpful. So, so what do we know with with the the diapoidy seed decay? You know, obviously we've we've touched on the other uh, parts of the complex. You know, pod and stem, blight stem, canker. Um, what what do we know about seed decay in, in genetics? Is, is that something all seed varieties are are potentially going to get if conditions are conducive, or, or do we see a difference in genetics? So based off the studies that's coming from the USDARS in Mississippi, and then again Mississippi State, it's a Storm Allen's and Tessie's uh, group. Uh, there are there are differences in how the varieties do respond to their uh, susceptibility to these. Uh, uh, to longicola as a seed pathogen. Okay. Um, and I believe the USDRS in Mississippi has also released lines that has got resistance to diporthia longicola, wow. again, intended for public use. Um, and we are, and a lot of these um, varieties were released based off data coming from their field trials. So what we are currently doing is we are screening some of these lines in the greenhouse uh, to test their, um, uh, to the susceptibility. So let's say we have perfect conditions for diaporthy seed decay late in the season. Uh, Andrew talked in the science portion about wetting and drying conditions. Can we reduce the risk by harvesting um, earlier, really focusing on the front side, or do those conditions just kind of infect we can. Um, again, it depends on the moisture levels. It all goes down to that. If it is extremely wet, of course, the combine is not going to pick it up, right? So if we can adjust, the, if we can wait till the moisture level drops down to like, I don't know, like maybe 13, 14% or some, uh, there are chances that we might still get good quality soybeans over those the disease ones. Okay. Um, but again, um, over time, you know, storage becomes very critical because sometimes you may be storing the healthy seeds with these symptomatic seeds and then the fungus again starts to sporulate and uh, spoil the seeds. So um, storage then has to be paid a lot of attention to how how that would be, how you would keep the healthy seeds away from the bad seeds before it gets to the processor. But yeah. um I would also suggest there are plant diagnostic clinics. You know, if the farmer is anytime in doubt, they can, of course, send their seeds off to the clinics to get it tested for diaporthy if that's their main concern. Yeah. Um, and, then, and, then, and then my final question for diaporthy seed decay management, I, I know this kind of ties into my experiences, you know, when, when Darren was doing a bunch of research on, on this uh, back in 2018. Well, what's the impact? You know, say you're a, a seed company and you have some a huge seed lot that's infected with diaporthy seed decay what, what do we know about the impact that um seed treatments and you know obviously fungicides can have on on that seed the, the following growing season being sold and then planted 
So since if I get your question correctly, you're saying, okay, there's a seed lot that's infected with diaporte, and if we were to treat it with fungicide, is that going to yeah, work? Like, yeah, yeah, just a fungicidal mm-hmm. seed treatment. What's, what's the impact that can have on, on the, the seed germinating and, and being a normal plant the, the following growing season? Right. So that's where um, I believe Dr. Rojas's group has demonstrated that, you know, QI fungicides can help control that seed infection. Um, but again, this is it, it. My understanding is the study was done in vitro. So how it's going to work under natural conditions, whether it's greenhouse or field, is yet to be uh, tested. But one thing to keep in mind is that the fungicide, you know, you say, for instance, if we dip the seeds in like a QI solution, uh, unless the if there is if the fungus is already present inside, I, I you know it may may not allow the seed to actually germinate because it really depends where exactly the fungus is present. Okay. If it's liquid right, of course the fungicide is going to kill it. But if it's yeah. inside the seed, then you know it might allow the germination to happen. But again, this the fungus is also growing alongside with the uh, in the seed. Yeah. So I, I uh, so that's I guess that's one of the things to maybe study for future. If fungicides truly have a role, um, but I guess that's where the companies come in. And from the experience that I have seen in different companies, you know, the seeds basically get tested first, right before they are coated with seed treatments and so on. Yeah. So you know, the bad seeds are basically pulled out. I mean, if there is any sign of these seed pathogens, I would think that these and those seeds don't proceed for treatment with seed treatments and yeah, so on. Absolutely. Yeah. As we finish with diaporthy seed decay, any additional management recommendations that you would ask our growers to consider? So, um, you know, the most important thing for diaporthy diseases is to know what the disease looks like. Uh, it is what was a very understudied disease for so many years. Uh, people may have thought it's chocolate rot. They thought it was phytophthora, white mold, and so on. Uh, diaporthy diseases have always been around, but it's just that it's just getting on to farmers' radar perhaps in the more recent e- years because mostly because of seed quality issues is the way I understand. Or, yeah. or it's the case of I've sprayed the fungicide, but this disease is still there. So those are a couple of things that's happening. So it's very important that they know what the disease looks like. Management techniques, if one were to depend on one technique, meaning just the use of fungicide or just the genetics, it's probably not going to work. My thinking is that they have to combine different practices to be able to control this disease. And that 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 is very important if, you know, if they want to, of course, for keeping their yield high and uh, keeping their uh, economic costs, um, high, their net Return on investment higher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, to to wrap up the the whole diaporthy complex management um, questions, um, uh, you know, j- just thinking about you, you've mentioned weed control as being a vital part of of this path. You know, managing this this disease and these pathogens. Um, what, uh, what just off the top of your head, you know, no no part of the complex specific, just diaporthy in general. What, what are some other hosts of this pathogen, just so we can have that in growers' minds, you know, in terms of uh, whether it's another species grown in the field or, or weeds? Right. So, um, so when I take a soybean field, um, at least, um, you know, like volunteer plants, like a corn that, let's say corn came first and then soybeans, but corn becomes a volunteer yeah. plant in soybean fields, so it's technically a weed. That could be a good host of diaporte. Uh, in our area, Koshia, Lanscada, uh, red root pigweed, wild sunflowers, hmm. they're all great hosts of uh, these uh, diaporte species. There could be more, like we haven't played around with like palma amaranth um, and so on, but there has been, you know, of, of course, 
because these these pathogens just live in the plant or on the plant. We don't know epiphyte, endophyte, uh, weeds in general. They could just be volunteers. It could also be a soybean. I, I don't know. I know there are a few farmers that do soybean over a soybean. It could be that that soybean was infected and they just didn't know about it. The soybean in a soybean field, volunteer soybeans could also potentially be great hosts. Yeah. Well, I, I think the final question is, you know, Sean kind of touched on this too, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts thinking down the road. You know, we have this new technology to maybe look at the, the DNA so profile of, of a soil and, and look at these specific pathogens. And, and you mentioned you're kind of involved with that somehow, you know, thinking long term. What, what's your thoughts on whether how we can use that now or maybe a few years down the road? How, how can we take advantage of, of running that DNA analysis for our soil and, and understanding the pathogens that may potentially be in that? What's your thoughts on how we can potentially use that now or in the future? So, um, you know, the DNA technology helps to accurately identify these species. You know, traditionally everything was done under the microscope, but unfortunately they look the same. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to differentiate species based on spores. And so that's where this DNA technology comes in. And that's why my lab developed qPCR assays for at least the species that we know is prevalent in the United States. So if the farmer, through this DNA uh, profiling that you guys are talking about, is able to know what pathogen is existing in his field, that will give him an opportunity to work with the seed dealer and determine what varieties he can plant that has specific, that has, you know, resistance to those specific species. Yeah, absolutely. because like I uh, um, like I indicated, if the variety has resistance to uh, diaporthy A, it may not have resistance to diaporthy B unless the genes are stacked together. Yeah. So with genetics, it's probably going to play a critical role in accurately identifying what species they have. And that's where the DNA profiling comes in. Excellent. It's been fascinating. Um, we finish our show uh, really with a couple kind of a... Uh, with a certain cadence, and, and one of my favorite questions is to ask you, um, Fabina, as you look back at your career to date, uh, what's one thing that you've been a part of or done that you thought was really cool and knew would make a significant impact on agriculture? I don't know if I've done anything cool thing because <laughs> I discovered dipole TA, which was not really a problem. And so I gave problems and now everyone's really worried about the dipole species. So I find it cool because that gives me job security. I don't know what others feel about it. Um, but the coolest thing I, I, I believe, for me, this has been more of a learning experience. Although I had my PhD in dipole sunflower, when it came to soybean, it was a lot more work because we were trying to redo the literature because the organisms that was historically recorded may may not be actually known today. So it was a lot of going back historically, uh, bugging people like uh, Dr. Know It All, really picking on his brain and few of the earlier uh, um, researchers like Dr. Craig Rowe. Uh, Dr. John Roop um, and Dr. Nelson, they're all now almost uh, ready for retirement. Um, it was, for me, that whole learning and still uh, wanting to know more about the fungus is probably what is keeping us going. Uh, we, not, we, not, we probably don't know everything about diapothy from Opsis. Um, I have experience on a different crop, so that helps me relate it to soybean and then somehow, uh, you know, we answer the questions accordingly. Um, but it's just... Um, 
the very fact that a disease was forgotten and then suddenly it came on uh, everyone's radar is i think it's really cool right? and i i'm glad to be part of that revolution i want to say <laughs> yeah well right. that that's good i mean you you look back you do all this work spend all the time doing the research getting your phd and focusing on this it's it's not a hugely talked about subject and then you look down the road years down the road, it becomes such a big issue and you're able to use all that information. It's, it's, it's got to be a good feeling. Yeah. One, one of the things, so we had a, a group uh, here this morning to tour our business and our farm and they're uh, in the state of Iowa as part of the World Food Prize. And I was telling them that something that had a big impact on me was being in the World Food Prize building in Des Moines and walking in, there's a, there's a room in there and on the room, there's all these plaques and these busts of people who have had a significant impact on agriculture. And as I was going through and reading about the vast majority of them, I promise in the middle of their career, they had no idea that their research and their work would have the profound impact it, it did, right? They were just passionate people who pursued narrow, narrow pieces of food security and science and those sorts of things. And it was really motivating to me to think about a lot of times we're not aware of the the volume of impact we're having in the moment it's only it's only realized later and doing this show with Andrew and, and the guests that we've gotten to have on it's always really humbling because I look at, at people like you Dr. Fabina who have put in years of really hard work and very technical um, areas of, of science and we're not always sure that 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 that's going to have some you know huge aha moment but it contributes to this library of science that allows us to understand these things in a significant way so I know um, as someone who works in the egg industry and and uh, and his life is dependent on uh, successful crops I I greatly appreciate that um, we do a fun thing at the end of our show uh, our show is called a penny for your thoughts and uh, it, at the end of each show, I cash in my penny. The task for Andrew is to give us a couple key succinct takeaways for our listeners to take home with them. So, Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny. You bet. It's, it's that time. Uh, th this one I'm going to have a little bit harder time with because we have three different, you know, part of this whole diaporthy complex. You don't get to do nine. Uh, you, so, you <laughs> yeah, it's, so that, that's good. I don't have to do nine because I, I think three, I'm, I, I got one that I know is a huge takeaway. Uh, we got three or four. Um, but I think the biggest one, you know, for being here and you talk about weed management, mm. wh whether it was, you know, diaporthy seed decay, you know, the um, stem canker, um, pot and stem blight. It sounds like you know, with, with the, the potential other hosts. Um, and on, on top of that, just, just weed management in general, you know, you're, you're talking stress in, in the potential endophyte. Um, it, it sounds like managing weeds it, it can play a vital role in the, in the diaporthy complex. Um, the, the second, the second key takeaway I, I think is, um, you know, with, with the, the numerous different species, you know, you meant, you mentioned, uh, longicola, cola, longicola, uh, numerous times, but but it sounds like I mean we have what is it twelve species identified right now? That's yeah, that's correct. About twelve species, but um, Longicola gets a um, gets an edge because it's just prevalent. It's everywhere. Um, yeah. It's probably got a, more, a lot more uh, hosts that can infect that can be infected by the fungus. Yeah, so um, so I, I think my second key takeaway is we we know that this the these species are. Uh, it, uh, associated with the diaporthy complex over winter in North and South Dakota, they're going to overwinter in, in Iowa and Illinois and across the Corn Belt, right? Um, so, so I, th I think that's one of those things that, you know, you mentioned this this disease is becoming more talked or this complex is becoming more talked about. So, I, I think 
like most diseases, as you can ten- continue to build inoculum, right, it- it's going to become an issue. Once it's here, it- it's going to stay here, you know, likely potentially could increase in inoculum every year. So it could become more of an issue. So I think it's just something that we need to start paying attention to, whether it's through our breeding efforts or through, um, you know, just different management practices, just something to keep top of mind. Um, I-, I think the final one is um, we-, we can, we can, somewhat manage this based on our timing of harvest, right? If we're talking diaporthy seed decay, um, what, once we have a stem canker in pot and stem blight, there's nothing we can do. But if there's any relationship with that and or the environmental conditions that lead to diaporthy seed decay, I would not be letting you, you know, if, if we have a continuously wet or dry, just a wetting and drying fall, I wouldn't leave your soybeans out there, right? Get those harvested. Even if it's at 14%, if you can find a window, if, if we've been wet and there's a window, don't run yeah. that risk of, of diaporthy seed decay. Get out there and get those soybeans harvested. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so th- those are our recommendations at this point. Um, I know one of the things, Andrew, you asked was if there was any in-season management. We really cannot do anything during the growing season, but we can definitely like, kind of slow down the infection by timely harvest. Um, yeah. The moisture is appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. Um Andrew, as we wrap our show today, give our guests a teaser about our next episode. Yeah, we're, we're going to take dive, uh, you know, do a, a first little change up in our show. You know, traditionally, we interview university professors on current topics that we feel are relevant to the industry. You know, we're going to we're going to resort back to our annual uh harvest summary. And so we're going to interview some uh, university agronomists from across the Corn Belt, and then also some growers across the Corn Belt, just to see how harvest has has gone, and then any key takeaways for 2023. So uh, we'll be back in two weeks with uh, some agronomists from different universities to sum up the growing season. Uh, And then two weeks after that, we'll, we'll talk with some growers across the Corn Belt to see how harvest went, and then see any key takeaways from them. I love it. It's always one of my favorite episodes to learn. Um, Andrew, as always, thank you for being uh, an exceptional host. And uh, Dr. Uh, Fabina, thank you for giving us your time and uh, your your knowledge, uh, both of science and management. We greatly appreciate you. So I just wanted to put a closing line. I really uh, thank you guys for having me on the show. But if there are questions, please reach out to Dr. Noital. <laughs> we, we will put uh we'll we'll put his personal cell phone number in the show notes and uh and everybody can reach out to dr nodal uh dr fabina thank you andrew thank you uh we'll see you guys in a couple weeks all right thanks so much thank you thank you for joining us on another episode of a penny for your thoughts we love your feedback Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.